This is God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am being fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, so now we turn to the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we do, uh, uh, I, I, it's important, I think, or it's helpful to remind ourselves that almost all of us have a favorite verse. In fact, when Brett was uh, candidating last Sunday night, somebody asked him, what is your favorite verse or your life verse from the Bible? Uh, most people who have been following Christ for some time uh, have a verse that stands out to them. Well, it's not just Christians that have favorite verses. Uh, people who know nothing about God and, and don't want to know anything about God have favorite verses as well. Uh, for some, it is uh, Matthew where it says, Judge not, lest you be judged. And uh, they know that verse and they use that verse. Um, and that's their perception of the Christian community and its um, response to the world. But many, many other uh, people who have no connection with the Christian faith at all know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, particularly verses 4 to 7. It is one of the most beautiful poems that has ever been written. It is a, a poem that has uh, been part of many, many wedding ceremonies, both as something that is written on the back or something that is read or something that forms part of the, the, the pastor's message or the, uh, the facilitator's message at that particular service. One of the things, though, that I want us to hear very clearly today is that that was not the original context or setting for those words. In fact, that was, I think, one of the, it would not have been crossed Paul's mind as he was writing those verses when he first wrote them. His letter to the Corinthian church is not primarily about marriage. It is about the life and the character and the body interaction of the church. And the first application of those words is to you and I as a body of believers, to us as men and women, to married and single, to old and young, to male and female. This is God's word through Paul to you and I about how we relate and interrelate with one another as the body of Christ. That is the first and that is the foremost and that is the primary application of these words that uh, Pastor Barry just read for us uh, a few moments ago. 
these verses form a very significant part of Paul's response to the Corinthian question about spiritual gifts. It is part of this uh, from chapter 12 to the end of chapter 14 of him addressing their question concerning spiritual gifts. It is not an add-on. It is not a tack-in. It is not something that he had in his files somewhere and thought that would fit perfectly here. It flows directly from his thought and instruction to the Corinthian believers as he wrote this letter. Uh, as we started in chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, it seemed like the issue was spiritual superiority, that those that had particular gifts thought they were better than other people, thought they were more mature than other people. And so there was a tension that was building in the church, and they wanted Paul to either affirm or deny that reality. When we come to uh, the last part of chapter 12, the issue there was on interdependence or independence, and that there were those within the church that really wanted to operate apart from the church and use their gifts and, and kind of elevate their gifts apart from their connection with the body of Christ. When we come to chapter 14, the, the significant point, I think, of that chapter is intelligibility. And, and that it really doesn't matter what you do, that if nobody can understand what you do, particularly in a speaking gift, then what's the point? And the point is that uh, the behind all of the gifts is the building up of the body of Christ. And so right in the middle of that, Paul draws their attention to love. And he wants them to understand that love is the most important thing about the operation of a family of God together. That love trumps spiritual gifts every time, all the time. And he wants them to understand that. He wants them to understand that character always trumps gifting. Every time, all the time. Put another way, the simplest, most profound description of the Christian character is love. And that's what he wants this congregation to understand. And this leads us, I think, to the main point of this particular section of scripture. And it is, a, it is a point that gives us perspective which many, many churches even today have lost sight of. And the perspective is an eternal perspective. And so the main point of this text to them and by way of them to us is this, that all spiritual gifts, every single one of them, without exception, is temporal. But love is eternal. And that perspective will help us get it right when we serve side by side with one another in the body of Christ. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I was a pastor in a Pentecostal church for 15 years, ordained with them. I appreciate so much of what I learned, so much of my heritage, what I gained from that experience and my time in the Pentecostal church. But as is the case with any denomination, so it was and is in the Pentecostal church, that distinctiveness or distinctive sometimes outweigh a balance when it comes to looking at Scripture. Baptists can be accused of it as well because we are so focused on baptism by immersion that we can forget a whole bunch of other things that are important. And so perspective matters. And sometimes when we teach or when we preach on distinctives of particular denominations, what we tend to do is magnify that distinctive above its normal context or um, in a way that the context doesn't allow us to magnify it. As I was reflecting in my head going through this text, I was trying to recall a time in 
one of those settings where I had heard a message connected with spiritual gifts and tongues and prophecy that brought us back to chapter 13 and the reminder and the emphasis on love. I went through my own history of teaching and preaching and realized that I don't think I had ever talked about the spiritual gifts in the context of love. What I always wanted to magnify was the centrality and the importance of the Pentecostal distinctives that we are a a movement that emphasized the ongoing reality of the Pentecostal gifts. And I lost sight of the balance that Paul intends to give here in chapter 13. I need to say this about this text at all, as well. And I want to throw out a word to you. Um, Pastor Barry threw out three big words last Sunday. I'm only going to throw out one. My word is eschatology. Uh, Eschatology, you will not find that anywhere in the Bible. But eschatology is a way that theologians have of summarizing what the Bible teaches about the last things. What the Bible teaches about the future state or the eternal state. This passage is... Um, bound up in eschatology or future things. And what Paul is talking about here is he wants to move our sight lines from our present reality and from this present age to an eternal reality and an age to come. He's already done that before. And he's encouraged us to think and live in light of not only the present, but also the future. You've heard me talk about this a few times. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I pray for, and I think others of you are praying for in this church, is that we be a church that is expectant. Uh, by that, what I have in mind is that we are a church that is always looking to the future, that is always looking to the return of Christ, that lives in the present with the very sure and certain hope and reality of the return of Jesus Christ and a new way of living. And Paul has already talked about that when we were in chapter 7. Some of you may remember when we got to chapter 7, verses 29 to 31, Paul puts marriage and relationships and, and life in the context of this world is passing away. And as he's talking to them about, should I get married? Should I stay married? Should I get remarried? What he wants them to think is this. He says, listen, marriage is an incredible gift of God. But marriage is part of this present age which is passing away. And in the age to come, in the future age, in the eternal state, there will be no marriage. For we will be like angels. There will be no giving or taking in marriage. And so he says, listen, if you can and you want to, you can live as though you are waiting for that day. That's what Paul wants us to do when he's talking about the gifts. What he wants us to understand is every spiritual gift is time-bound. It is limited to this age. They are wonderful things. They are a benefit to the body of Christ. But at the end of this age, they will all cease. They will all end, without exception, every one of them. But what will not end is love. And so he's trying to get these Corinthian Christians to live and serve and use the gifts that God has given them in this perspective of an eternal age or a future age to come. And what he wants to do, and we, 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 we could have, and I think if, if, if people who put the chapter markers, um, uh, there's a few places they, they could have done it a little differently. I think they could have put the chapter marker and included um, chapter 12, verse 31b, where Paul says to them, and I will show you a more excellent way. 
He's been talking about gifts and what a wonderful thing it is for a body of Christ to have tongues and prophecy and healings and miracles and faith and and service and administration. That is wonderful. But he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. And that excellent way is the way of love amongst the body of believers. This is a call to all of us to, to get into the stream of the eternal reality of love as a body of Christ. And the first thing that he does is he sets out to them the absolute necessity of the glue of love to the body of Christ. I want to just say something about love quickly before I say anything about the next uh, three verses or the first three verses. Because I've already said love is the necessary glue that binds us together. Love is like mortar in a brick wall. It's what ties and holds all the bricks together. It is absolutely necessary and absolutely essential. There are four words in the Greek language that I'm aware of that refer to love. Um, One of the Greek words is eros. It's a word that refers to sensual love or sexual love. Um, But it is a word that you won't find anywhere in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. But it is found frequently in Greek literature. A second word for love that you will find in the New Testament and in Greek uh, literature is phileo. It's a word from which we get Philadelphia from, so to speak. It comes before there. It's a word that talks about deep brotherly or sisterly affection for one another. It's not sensual. There's no sexuality implied in it. It is just a deep affection that we have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ or as brothers and sisters in the world around us. We can say, I love my brother or I love my friend. That's phileo or brotherly love. A third type of love and a word that's used in the Bible is storge. And it's a one that is used in the New Testament to refer primarily to family affection. It's a kind of love that just describes what happens when um, most of us get together on Thanksgiving or on, on Christmas or at a wedding or even at a funeral. There is just love and it's storge. The word Paul uses here is one of the most rare words in Greek literature. In fact, it's, it's only found once or twice in all of Greek literature. It's the word agape. But it is one of the most common words for love in the New Testament, used hundreds of times in the New Testament. What happened? Well, Paul did what we still do today. He created or he brought into uh, use and gave definition to a word that describes something that previously had not been understood or had not existed. We do that all the time. I typed in this last week, um, uh, new words in the last 10 years. It was fascinating what popped up. Um, Helicopter parent uh, describes a type of parenting where uh, a parent hovers over their children. Um, Wingnut, I love this word. Uh, I don't think I invented it, but wingnut talks about crazy people. Um, chillax. You know, what do you do on a summer night at the end? I'm just chillaxing. I'm chilling out. I'm relaxing out on my deck. A new word created, a new meaning to it. One of my favorite words, and this will betray maybe my old habits, but it is uh, dope. Um, it's what you say when you do something stupid yourself. And uh, oh, dope. Oh. Anyhow, it's a new word. It didn't exist before the Simpsons. (laughs) Well, Paul does that with this particular word, agape. 
he, he takes a word that had almost no content, no meaning, no existence, and he pours into it through the direction and the help of God content that is absolutely mind-blowing. There was no word for love that described something, an act that was selfish or, or selfless, sorry, or sacrificial. There was no word that could describe the breadth of love that was demonstrated on the cross. There was no word for love that demonstrated the action of putting the welfare of others above yourself. There was no word in that used that, that for love that described how one cared for somebody who was utterly unworthy of that care. There was no word to describe a type of love that gave to one's own hurt. There was no word that could give context to for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son there was no word that could describe what it meant when later Paul would write for God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners there was no word that could take all of that and more and put it into a single word that would just expand like um, uh, um, one of those chia pets um, in our hearts and so he used agape. And agape is a word that captures all of that. And it's the word that Paul uses to describe the way that you and I ought to love. It's a love that is exotic. This is a love that you don't find in the world. This is a love that comes from God because God is love. And the only reason we can love like this is because God first loved us and has demonstrated that love to us. As Paul goes into this text, um, you'll notice right away in the first three verses, it's all in the first person. I so appreciate about Paul this kind of thing. He doesn't, he's not chastising the Corinthians uh, sort of directly. He's not saying, listen, you people are this. He says, if I, if I speak in tongues of angels or uh, in tongues and of angels if i prophesy if i have faith to move all mountains if i do this this and this he includes himself in this reminder that all of those things how wonderful and how great and how helpful they are if they take place in a context that is loveless then you're nothing but a noise you gain nothing and you are nothing. That is how critical love is to the body of Christ. That is how important it is that we grasp this reality that above everything else that we do, above any motivation that we have for doing it, if we are not motivated by love, it profits us nothing, we gain nothing, and we might as well be just indiscriminately banging stuff. He picks up on seven gifts. He limits it to seven only for illustrative purposes. He uses some of the more dramatic gifts, which we would say are dramatic gifts, to make his point. And his point is simply this. Merely possessing a gift says nothing about the person. The fact that I preach the word of God says nothing about me. The fact that somebody mows our lawns says nothing about them. The fact that we have great ushers that serve us week in week says nothing about them if we do all of this without love. Love is the motivation and the background and the, the glue and the DNA of all that we do. 
So put simply in that first three verses, spiritual gifts minus love equals nothing. There's no other, there's no other equation for it. Love is the necessary glue of the body of Christ. The second thing that I just want to draw your attention is verses 4 to 7. It's the characteristics of love. What's rotten in Corinth? What's rotten in Corinth is there's no love. This is what Paul is pointing out to them. And this list is aimed at the Corinthian faults. If you remove the negatives from this list, you get a picture of what church life was like in Corinth. There was jealousy, pride, unkindness, selfishness, resentment, various other things. Uh, And Paul has this amazing way of, at the same time, extolling and magnifying love, and at the same time, reminding them that they are loveless in the church. It's a brilliant uh, way that Paul goes about this. The most glaring weakness in the church in Corinth was not their their, their biblical knowledge was not their, their miracles, was not their faith, was not their service. It was the absence of love. What's central to love? Action. Every one of those verbs, or every one of those words he gives is a, is a verb. It implies action. We don't, it's not passive. It's not something that we sit back and will just happen. Love is an act. It's dynamic. It's active. It's not static. It's not conveyed in words. It's shown through actions. It's defined by what it does and it doesn't do. But that doesn't mean that there is no feeling or emotion in love. There are times, yes, where you just have to power through love and do the actions of love. Um, uh, and, and as you're doing that, you pray, God, would you give me the feelings to to accompany this, but you still have to love even in the absence of feelings. But that doesn't mean that normally love is without feeling. I, don't, I wouldn't want to be loved without feeling. And I wouldn't want God to love me without feeling. And so, while it is primarily an emphasis on action, there is feeling and heart and emotion behind those actions. Let me just quickly give you, um, unpack these words. And the intention is not so that you maybe catch one or two, but that you feel the weight, the breadth, the expanse, the depth of love, um, what one word conveys. It's patient. That means the opposite of being short-tempered. It's always used to describe a patience with people and not with circumstances. Love is kind. That means it's tender-hearted. It acts with goodness towards, um, towards those who ill-treat them. It gives itself in service and kindness to others. It does not envy. It's not displeased with another's success or another's things. It does not boast. It does not self-promote itself. It is not arrogant, a pompous windbag, or conceited. It is not rude, and that word carries behind it sexual overtones or shameful or disgraceful behavior. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not self-centered. It, it's love defers. Love seeks to be second rather than first. It's not irritable or provoked. It doesn't give itself to fits of anger or fly off the handle into anger. It doesn't provoke others to angle, anger. It doesn't let people get under our skin. 
It's not resentful. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. That's an accounting term. It means to put something on a ledger with a view to payback or a reminder of it. This will never be forgotten. Love does not keep score. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice at another people's hurt or misfortune. What is it about us that we secretly enjoy the misfortune and the missteps of others? It rejoices in truth. It always seeks to expose what is right and to celebrate the truth, to speak the truth in life. And then listen to the comprehensiveness as Paul brings it together and so to speak. It bears all things. It never tires of support. It does not gossip. It's a willingness to hang in there even through the darkest of times. Love believes all things. It never loses faith in another. It doesn't foster a culture of suspicion. It's always eager to believe. It's always ready to give the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things. It never exhausts hope. It refuses to take failure as the final word. It endures all things. It weathers the roughest of storms. It's an active, positive outlook on life. That is a picture of love. This, loved ones, is the way of love. This is what God calls us to as his children. More than tongues or prophecy, more than wisdom or faith, more than knowledge or miracles, is that we walk in the way of love. Love trumps spiritual gifts Every time, all the time. And then finally, the last few verses. It's the abiding nature of love. It's a single point that's made again and again and again through these illustrations that Paul gives. He starts it in verse 8 and he ends it at verse 13. In verse 8, he begins by saying, love never fails. And then in verse 13, he said, love abides. Love never ceases to exist, both now and into eternity. Love will always exist. These verses are full of controversy. It saddens me. It troubles me. I've contributed to that controversy. I really think they're fairly simple. I really think we have spilt so much ink and we've argued to no end on stuff that really doesn't matter. But these verses are full full of controversy and they swirl around this particular issue. When do the gifts end? I don't know why we are so consumed with wanting to come to a point where we say, well, that gift no longer operates anymore. That one doesn't exist in the church anymore. Or that one does. And, you know, you need to stop your arguing. That they've all like, I don't understand that. Because I come to a text like this, and it seems to be very clear to me. When do these things pass away? When the perfect comes. Has the perfect come yet? Has Christ returned yet? Are we into the eternal state yet? As far as I can see, that has not happened yet. And because that has not happened yet, I believe the gifts are still necessary and important and part of regular church worship and life. It seems simple to me. When the perfect comes, every gift, every gift will cease. Verse 11, he makes the point with the illustration of infancy and childhood. In 12, he makes the point with this time, uh, a contrast this time with uh, then. In verse um, 
uh, 9, he makes the point that what we are now is in a time of partial. We're coming to a time when things will be complete. The perfect, loved ones, refers to an eternal state brought about by the return of Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. What a day that will be when the heavens part and the trumpet sounds and Christ descends in all his glory, power, and beauty, and he makes all things new. That's the day when the perfect comes. It's shorthand for the consummation of all things, for the intended goal of redemption. Everything points to that day when the partial will become complete. In verse 11, it's Paul's conviction that the gifts belong to an order that will pass away. I see that. I believe that. He, he doesn't, or he, he means that the gifts are evident. He doesn't mean that the gifts are evidence of spiritual immaturity. What he's talking about is two ages. There's an age of, of immaturity, of childness, where we don't know all things. We don't understand all things. That's the age we're in now. But there is coming an age where we will grow up, so to speak. And so in the in-between time, we're confused or we need the gifts and they, they help us make sense of things and they move us ahead. There's age appropriateness, in other words, for certain activities. But then there comes a time in our age where, where it's no longer appropriate for that. And I think that's what Paul's saying right now in the church age. It's appropriate. It's appropriate that you use the gift that God has given you through his spirit. But there is coming a day and they will no longer be necessary. And you won't need to exercise that gift. Verse 12 is the final illustration of how partial knowledge will be placed by full knowledge. He uses this example of seeing in a mirror. All mirrors distort. They reverse the reflection. Right is left and left is right. They are two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. They are limited by their frame. In a mirror, we see partially or indistinctly. We don't see a whole picture. We only have a glimpse on earth of the eternal, but when the perfect comes at the consummation, understand this, loved one. We will see God face to face. And I don't understand this fully, but we will know as we have always been known by God. That God right now has a perfect and complete knowledge of every single one of you. And somehow, in some way, on that day, we will have that knowledge also. We will see ourselves as God has always seen us. Amazing day that will be. And finally, he just compares gifts, or, or he, he talks about virtues of faith, hope, and love. And he says, of all of those three, love is even the most important. Why? Well, faith will become sight, right? Hope will become realized, right? But love will never end. So he says, the greatest of these is love. So gifts do not measure spirituality or what's most important in a church, in the body of Christ. Love does. And I'm not saying to you, but I think if I had to, I would, but I don't have to, so I won't. I'm not saying to you, don't press in to God to find out how he wants to use you in this day, at this time, in this place. Paul will say earnestly, desire 
the spiritual gifts. But if it ever comes to a point where we have to choose or we're out of hand, I will say, get rid of the gifts. Love. Just love on one another. This is what call, call, Paul calls the Corinthian believers to. I suspect that when this was first read, you could have heard a pin drop there. Because they had all been vying for position. They had all had their, 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 their view of what Paul was going to say. They, they had it figured out. And all of a sudden, it's like Paul just hits them square between the eyes. He says all of that needs to take second place to love. This kind of love is so much bigger than I am. So what about us? That was the Corinthians. What about us now? I wrestled with whether or not this was heretical. I, I don't think it's heretical. And don't send me an email that I'm adding to Scripture. But I benefited this past week. Um, not that it helped me love more, but it exposed how far short I fall from love by inserting my own name in place of love. Paul is patient and kind. Paul does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Paul bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That was too much for me, and it is too much for me as I read it now, because I know I can never, ever measure up. And so I think, how can I challenge you to say, now go in love like this, because you go out in despair. How can I love like this? And then I read Jesus' words. A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's like I've turned the other cheek and been smacked again. But before we give up, before we even try, what I want you to do is look to God. Turn your gaze from your own weaknesses and your own failures to God. Because that's where we learn to love like this. One of the writers said somewhere that we love because he first loved us. We're not in a desert trying to find our way by ourselves. We are sons and daughters of the God who is declared to be the God of love. And he tells us to imitate him. And so turn to your father and say, I want to be just like my dad. Turn to your father and say, Father, would you teach me how to love as you have loved me? God doesn't call us to an impossible standard. He has already demonstrated his love from the moment of creation to this moment and will into eternity and he most brilliantly displayed his love on the cross, which we'll be reminded of in a few moments here together. It's like in tangible, visible ways, God says to us, see 
how I have loved you. So it's not an exercise in futility. We can love because God has first loved us. Some of you here today might have a view of the love of God which is out of whack. I know, I know people, I think sometimes even Christians have a view of the love of God that is out of whack. It's sentimental, it overlooks everything, it's one-dimensional. What I want you to do, if you're wrestling with how to understand the God of love, take God and insert him in this text where it says love. That will give you a brilliant picture of how God loves you and of how God loves. We can do this also because Jesus lives in us. You understand that, right? We've been talking about the fact that we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So yes, on our own, in our own futile flesh, it is impossible to do this. But our Father has shown us the way. Our brother has demonstrated it to us. And our brother lives in us through the Spirit of God. And so we can love like this. This table is an incredible expression of the love of God today in all its fullness. This table is an illustration of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. It is an illustration of the way God has loved every one of us who is one of his children. What I want us to do as we come to this table today and as we participate in I want you, I say this so carefully, I want you to feel the love of God afresh. I want you to experience the patience of God, the kindness of God, the selflessness of God, the forbearance of God, the endurance of God the comprehensive love of God that seems to be zeroed in on the cross of Jesus Christ. Finally, I suspect, I just suspect that maybe there's a few here today who are quietly saying, I have never felt love like this. I've never been loved like this in my life. I have never experienced somebody who expresses love towards me in patience or in kindness or who doesn't keep records of wrong or who doesn't give up on me or who doesn't walk away from me. Your heart cries out, oh, to be loved like this. Oh, to know that somebody loves me like this. I want you to hear that this is the heart of God to you today. This is the way that God loves you. This is the fullness and the extent of God's love to you today. We sing a song from time to time. We sing lots of songs with the word love in it. And what I hope to push you to do is as much as you can, every time we sing a song, that has love in it, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. And think about how God loves you. We sing that song from time to time, Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves me. And fill in, Oh, God, you are patient with me. You are so patient with me that you put up with me until I finally 
responded to your call. God, you are so kind to me. I have been brutal to you. I have rejected you. I have walked away from you. I have thrown your word back in your face. And you have been kind to me. God, if you should mark my sin against me, I could never stand. But you have removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. You have thrown it behind your back. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my gods, should die for me? I think today, I'm not mistaken, I know in one of the services we're going to sing how deep the Father's love for me. Absorb that. Sing it with your mind directed to 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 and experience and realize the depth of God's love for you. And nobody has to leave here today saying, I don't know what love is. I've never experienced love like that. Father, we come to you today and... Uh, I pray that as we gather around this table now, Lord, that um, we would sense in a fresh new way, we would experience, um, we would be moved to a greater understanding of the heights and the depths and the breadths of your love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're serving communion, if you'd come and join me at the front. And this is a, an open table. Uh, the thing that I believe, only thing that protects this table is whether or not you're a child of God. 